minds. And here is your host, Gary Cacciolio. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Sinkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Ms. Aida, author of A List of Demonic Names, A Pocket Guide for the Paranormal Investigator, Exorcist, Psychic, and Metaphysical Practitioner. Monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And by the name, you can tell she is a tarot reader, but she's also a psychic and channeler. And if you are looking for some guidance or just want to know what the cards have in store for you, I recommend checking her out at tarotbyginger.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Preston Dennett, and he has a new book out. It is a volume four of Not From Here, Selected UFO Articles and... I have to, I am anxious to hear stories about cars or UFOs crashing into cars or cars crashing into UFOs. What's up, Preston? <laughs> oh, doing well. Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing good. So this is the first time I've ever heard about UFOs crashing into cars. I don't even know how you find these cases. Yeah, well, I've certainly heard of a few, uh, but after running across a couple of them, I started to look deeper into it. I have a big library, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) I have like a thousand books. I'm not kidding. Maybe even 2,000. I've got every MUFON journal stretching back to the 1960s, and now I'm getting more computer savvy in terms of how to search. You know, internet is such a great tool. When I got involved in this field, there was no internet. <laughs> there were libraries, but right. uh, now it's, it's amazing to be able to search various databases. So it's, you know, UFO accounts are not hard to find. A lot of people are having these experiences. But if, you're, if you have the patience and you have the time, you, you can really sift through an enormously large database. And there's some very interesting things out there. You have to sift through quite a bit, you know, a lot of chafe to sift through. Uh, but definitely, there's cases out there. Yeah, the UFO car collisions, plane collisions, found one involving a boat, a boat, one involving a train as well. So, I definitely found some neat stuff. That is incredible. What do you think it is? Like, like, why would a UFO? Lift a car off. Well, actually, we'll talk about crash. Like, how? how? If, if their technology is so advanced, right, to get from another planet to here, how could they possibly have a vehicle accident? Well, I think that accidents happen, plain and simple. They're people. They're like us. They're not infallible. And if activity is as you know rampant as it is, 
sooner or later something like this is going to happen. And perhaps, you know, these aren't accidents necessarily as we think of it. I think some are. There's a few, but I'm, I kind of wonder if this was more intentional, sort of a little nudge or a fender bender. And there's one case that comes to mind which occurred on July 28, 1994, over the Mexico City airport. This is when a DC-9 is coming in for approach. And this UFO comes in right under them and kind of bumps into the uh, landing gear. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, this freaked out the pilot. The controller is the one who came forward and revealed this story. His name uh, is Enrique Kolbeck, and he granted an interview. So this is how this case came to light. Um, according to Enrique, there had been a lot of UFO activity before and after this incident over Mexico City Airport. But in this case, this DC-9 was actually struck by this object, uh, very much again like a fender bender. So it wasn't like super dangerous in terms of the plane coming down for a, a crash right. or anything. But they did land safely and the wheels were inspected, and the hydraulics were damaged. Uh, so I'm wondering if that one was just a little, hey, here we are, nudge. My brother did that to me once. I'm driving <laughs> along. Uh, I thought I was, you know, surrounded by strangers. This car comes closer and closer behind me, closer. I'm like, this guy's going to hit me. And bam, he hits me. I'm like, oh, what the heck? And it was my brother Jamie. Nudged me. I'm like, just like him. I mm -hmm. kind of... You know, that just came to my mind, actually, I'm wondering if that's what's going on here. Because there are a few cases like that, though not all of them. Uh, there was a couple of cases. There was a very famous incident, which there was pictures all over the Internet of this Chinese jet, uh, which was a, let's see, a, oh gosh, I forget what kind of jet it was. But this was on June 4th, 2013. And uh, they were flying at 26,000 feet. And something struck the nose cone. So they came in for a landing, and uh, there was no publicity about it at first, but a passenger did take a picture of the nose cone and posted it on the Internet. And so this did go somewhat viral, and everyone's wondering, what the heck did they hit? And the Chinese airport never released any statement on it. Uh, but the speculation was it might have been birds, because that does happen. This is 26,000 feet, and there's only a few types of birds. Who yeah, can it's high. Uh, they can. Vultures, uh, condors, and geese haven't been known to fly that high, but it's pretty rare, and uh, generally they would leave some sort of residue on the nose cone. Uh, and if you look at the, the pictures of this, and you can look it up pretty easily, uh, it's pretty severe damage, so I wonder about that. And there's a few cases like that. Most recent I could find of a plane incident occurred not too long ago, actually, in October 2017. And this was a Boeing 757 on route from Minnesota to Illinois. And what's interesting about this one is who was on board was the Oklahoma uh, City Thunder, an NBA uh, basketball team. And the plane was at 30,000 feet and struck something and again, you can see pictures of the damage on this. And because these guys were famous, they were tweeting all over the place about it. 
Like it wasn't Superman. We struck something. <laughs> mm. uh, but yeah, there's you know I didn't find nearly as many as I thought I would find, considering that there are so many pilot encounters. And it's interesting to me because during the congressional hearings this year, uh, the Pentagon raised the um, possibility that this is a danger to pilots and uh, these UFOs coming so close and invading our airspace. And I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure it's a danger, really. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. with only some, let's see, seven cases out of how many, 100,000, the chances of this happening are absolutely statistically insignificant. But there are a few cases. The earliest I could find was 1955. This involved Major Stevens, who was flying over Pixley, uh, California. And uh, this case was released because as soon as he landed, he told reporters that he hit something. <laughs> it was like striking a brick wall. And he said flat out, uh, I was struck by a flying saucer. To direct quote. And there were other witnesses who saw UFOs in that area at that time. So there's some independent confirmation of this. Uh, his officials, his superiors, I should say, at Edwards Air Force Base, did try to cover it up. But this just caused more attention, and eventually they did release a statement, an absolute official statement from Edwards Air Force Base, saying that there was an accident, and that whatever struck this plane, it, quote, looked like something struck from above. So, yeah, these cases do happen. I kind of found the car incidents even more interesting, though. How does that happen? Um, well, there's a number of them. Uh, I found about a dozen. And, you know, I've done a few podcasts on this already. And one lady's like, oh, I have a case. <laughs> She's an <laughs> investigator from Missouri. She described a case I didn't know about where a smaller object came and hit the person's roof and dented it up. There's a number of cases like that. I think the most interesting to me was... This guy, well, I've got a couple, actually, of people who hit actual entities. Uh, there was one case in se on September 1st, 1984, in Cayente, Arizona, where a family is driving along, and suddenly this person in a white jumpsuit is right ahead of him on the road. He slams on the brakes, not in time to stop, and they hear a loud thump. This is at night. And uh, so he quickly stops the car and jumps out. And there's nobody there. There's nobody around. This is not an area where, you know, a city. This is Arizona desert. So if someone was there, they should be visible. Uh, they weren't. And what's interesting about this is the car uh, had all kinds of electrical issues. It completely, the engine went dead. And he's a mechanic. He's a looking through it and you know he pulled his whole family out and put them off to the side of the road where they're safe and he's opening the hood and he's checking the car everything seems fine <laughs> and he shuts it and he's not sure what to do when the lights suddenly come on boom and then the whole car is fine again so that's the, your typical sort of yeah electrical issues that we see when ufos come very close and that's one case involving an entity and an even more interesting one <laughs> occurred on March 28, 1967. And this was uh, involving a guy by the name of David Morris. And he's driving home from work. This is in Kent, Ohio. 
and this is a kind of a funny case to me, because <laughs> uh, he's driving along, you know, it's a normal night, when he sees this glow along the left side of the road that's getting brighter as he approaches, he's like, what's going on? I didn't think there was anything there. He knows this road pretty well. He travels it you know, nightly. And as he's getting closer, he sees this object. It's kind of long and slender uh, and vertical. And he sees it. And he's like, what the heck is this? And uh, it's a metallic object or solid and glowing quite brightly. It's not anything normal. And the closer he gets to it, the more he sees that this is not a normal thing. He's starting to get quite concerned about it and is paying very close attention to it and not the road. <laughs> and suddenly movement ahead of him catches his eye and he sees a half dozen or so little figures crossing the road. And these are short little guys, uniformed, you know, four feet tall or so. And they don't seem to be paying attention to the traffic at all. And as soon as he sees them, he slams on the brakes. And not in time, he bam, hits one of them and skids to a stop a few yards ahead and stops the car, jumps out and starts to run towards them, but doesn't get much farther than his car. And he sees these are uh, little guys. They're not human. Uh, uh, don't seem to really be paying attention to him. Uh, but as he's looking at them and he realizes this is not normal at all, it finally dawns on him that this is a UFO and these are occupants. And so he freaks out, jumps into his car and peels off and goes home and kind of sits on his couch for an hour trying to calm down until he finally calls his friend and says, you're not going to believe what happened. And his friend's like, oh my God, let's go back. We have to check this out. So they do. They go back to the site, and of course the UFO is gone, so are the figures. There's no landing trace evidence. The only evidence of this accident is skid marks uh, on the road. At first, that's what they think, but then looking at the car, they see that the chrome is dented on his bumper and scratched as well. So they ended up calling the police, who you know went to the accident scene and verified all of this. The police ended up calling UFO researchers, and so this case became fairly well known and was well documented. But the end result of it was David Morris never took that route home from work ever again. <laughs> he took the long route around. I would probably keep taking the same route. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Right? I want to know. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances of actually seeing extraterrestrials crossing the street? It always surprises me that people have a strong fear reaction because I run, I would run towards <laughs> the object, not too close. I, I've learned from you know reading and talking to people that you probably don't want to run up to a landed UFO. <laughs> Could be hot, mm -hmm. so I want to keep your distance. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I suppose I understand that it might be scary for someone who's never heard about this or had any exposure to the subject. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I kind of, I'm really obsessed about doing this research. Finding out UFOs were real was a huge shock. Uh, and it really flipped me onto my head. Uh, so, I yeah, I understand it. But I think I would definitely <laughs> go towards it.
But yeah, quite a few cases. It's funny. Some, I had like a, a bunch occur in 1967. That one case was in 1967. And just a couple of months later, July 13, 1967, in the city of White House, Ohio, uh, two people, let's see, Robert Richardson and Jerry Quay, came upon this object in the road around a corner, and they were going too fast to stop, and bam, it hit it. And uh, this dented their bumper and the hood. This object went up and off into the stars and was gone. But this case was investigated by APRO, and there was apparently some metallic residue, which they were going to send to labs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked for a follow-up on this, because that would have been interesting, but... If there was any study of what this metal was, it was not published, certainly not in the APRO bulletin, their monthly journal. Right. But I wonder about that, because some of these cases uh, probably would have good evidence that this is not a normal incident. Hmm. That's a fascinating one. Your book opens up with a really interesting case, uh, and one of, which was... Um, these teenagers getting stuck in the sand and one of them goes off to get help and they decide to do like a CE5 and a craft comes and lifts the car out of the sand. <laughs> yes. I love this case. This is, you know, a car lift case. Researchers call these car lifts. These are cases where UFOs come down and will lift the car up off the road Sometimes just lift it up and set it down. Sometimes move it. Sometimes carry it for a couple of hundred yards to a quarter mile, a mile, several miles in a few cases. Usually this is just a few feet off the ground, maybe up to six feet, but not much higher than that usually, unless it's a you know an onboard experience, which I think a few of these are, but most aren't. In that case you cited... <laughs> I probably would have dismissed it, Gary, uh, if there weren't other cases, because it's such an unusual case. But a lot of these are really crazy. In that case, which was the earliest I could find, 1959, came to my attention when I was writing UFOs over Nevada, and I found three cases of car lifts. And that's why I'm like, well, wait, I have one, which occurred in Topanga Canyon, I knew a very famous one, which occurred in Australia. It's very famous in the literature, the Faye Knowles case uh, on the Nullabar Plain. But the one you cited is so weird. Because, <laughs> yeah, these kids got stuck in the sand outside of Goldfield, Nevada, and uh, were going to, you know, tried to dig themselves out of the sand, couldn't do it, and were kind of like, well, we're going to have to walk out in the morning. And uh, they were sitting there in their truck, just talking, and the, su the subject of UFOs came down. And they mentally like, well, let's see if we can call one down. <laughs> and I know how this might sound to a skeptic, like, you know, we thought about them, we're talking mm -hmm. about them, then one came. But this is a CE5 technique. And I can tell you I've got case after case, not only of my own, but certainly that I've read about, where people start talking about UFOs, and that's when they show up. Uh, because the Remember, these guys are telepathic. They're keeping very close watch on events. I think this offers them an opportunity to say hello, which is essentially, I think, what these car lift cases are. It's a howdy-do in a very <laughs> dramatic way. 
And yeah, in that case, uh, UFO did show up shortly later, lifted their pickup truck up and set it back on the road. And it's funny, the main witness waited some 25 years to report this, insisted upon anonymity, and he was able to locate his girlfriend who was there years and years after the incident, mm -hmm. called her up. And the first thing that was out of her mouth was like, oh my God, it's you. Do you remember that time the UFO came down? He's like, of course I do. That's why I wanted to call you. <laughs> and they started comparing notes and uh, they remembered exactly the same thing with one difference, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. She remembers it being all kinds of fun and she was laughing during the whole thing. And he says, I didn't, don't remember that. <laughs> I was screaming my butt off. <laughs> he was scared. <laughs> huh. Uh, so that was really the only difference, which you know doesn't surprise me. There's always subtle differences, mm -hmm. multiple eyewitness accounts. And that was the case that I'm like, okay, I'm going to look deeper into this because I instantly thought of the Faye Knowles case and the Millibar Plains. And boy, is that a case. Mm. It's interesting because I've tried to contact like you had told me to try it when i was still living in Al Valley a couple years ago and i tried it and i saw something i saw something i could not explain the whole telepathy thing works so i've never heard a case where a ufo has come to you know this was the first time i've read about them coming to like you know to assist humans with something simple as being stuck in the sand um i've got other cases i've got a case involving a lady was a good witness. Mm -hmm. I met her at a CE5 uh, group, actually. <laughs> She's since passed away. But what a lovely lady. Really smart. Very vivacious and outgoing and funny. Uh, she's a former real estate agent and then became a psychologist. So, you know, a good witness. And had had encounters her whole life. The little girl, she was chased by this UFO. So scary. <laughs> And she was an abject terror until it struck her with this beam of light. And then she's mm -hmm. like, felt great. <laughs> That's this, these beams sometimes have calming effects. And uh, it pulled her right up into the craft. And the next thing she knows, she's in bed wearing different clothes. There's sticks and leaves in her bed. And then she started having greys coming and visit, visiting her. A number of UFO sightings. But as a young woman, she was driving through the Wachung Mountains of New Jersey. I know where that's at. <laughs> Late at night, it was pretty remote back then, and uh, there were no buildings or cars around, uh, and she slid her motorcycle. She crashed and bent it up pretty bad. These were the days where the motorcycles did not have ignitions on them. You, you had little kickstarters. Mm -hmm. And she was fine, but she inspected her bike, and her kickstarter was completely bent out of shape. She's like, well, shoot, I'm stranded. And there's not much chance of a car coming by. It's pretty cold. So she's wondering what she's going to do when these beings show up. She's like, oh, my God, this is the incident that really got her to realize these are extraterrestrials. She's in contact. And she described them as about five feet tall. She said they were wearing white jumpsuits, if anything. And the only thing dark on them were their large, dark eyes. But she says they looked almost human. Hmm. They had bald heads, but they weren't large or anything. They didn't say a word, nothing. They just kind of uh, approached her, and she stepped back from the bike. 
She said she was no further than three feet away from them. So she got a really good look. And one's looking at her. And then they look down at the bike. One of them lifts the bike up, <laughs> crouches down and takes his hands and starts straightening out the Kickstarter with his hands and fixes the bike. And they put perch the bike back up and motion for her to get on it, <laughs> which she does. And she immediately kickstarts it. They both nod at each other <laughs> and she takes off. I'm like, oh, you know, did you see a UFO? She's like, no, I didn't. I, but I didn't really look around. You know, her heart was thumping. Mm -hmm. And she, all she did was quickly glance over her shoulder as she's driving away. And she saw them. She looked in her rearview mirror, and they were gone. She says, I regret it now. I, I wish I would have stopped and tried to communicate with them. But she said it was just so surprising and alarming that she didn't think things through and just wanted to get going. But they rescued her. They absolutely saved her. And I've got a number of cases of people who were saved from auto accidents and, you know, a drowning, two, two or three drowning cases. Uh, someone was being assaulted in, this was Arizona, by a bad man. And a UFO came down right over him and he ran off in fear. She ran, she ran towards the UFO. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, they do rescue people. There's quite a few cases, actually. How do the drowning cases work? Do they just pull them out of the water with, like, a tractor beam? Uh, well, one case I personally investigated involved a lady who was just a little girl and fell into a river in Rotenburg, Germany. And uh, she doesn't really remember seeing anybody because she was drowning. She couldn't get her air, and she's going under. And next thing she knows, she's on the bank. And there's nobody around her. And she's like, what the heck just happened? And it was later when she went under hypnosis that uh, she recalled that these figures came down, human-looking figures, uh, pulled her out. And another case I found I didn't investigate personally occurred in South America somewhere. I also can't remember if this was Peru or Brazil or where exactly, but it involved a uh, teenage boy who was walking along and became stuck in a, a bog in the mud, mm -hmm. kind of like quicksand. And he's like, well, this is it. <laughs> I'm going to die. Because the more he struggled, the deeper he went. He was up to his neck, and these beings showed up. And he said they were reptilian-looking, actually, but not big, four feet tall, maybe, and wearing jumpsuits, if I recall correctly. Uh, and pulled him out. T says it took him a little bit to pull him out of the, you know, from the suction of the mud. But he was ready to just give up at that point. And uh, they pulled him out. Wow. Are there any other rescue cases? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's another lady who was going to visit her mother out in the California desert. And uh, she left her mom's home because, you know, it was getting dark and it's a long drive. And she's driving along, going towards the 5 freeway, I think it was, which is a big freeway. But she's still on this little side street a few miles from it. And this is in a fairly desert area. When this UFO shows up and knocks her car uh, out, you know, the engine. And just sitting there and she's like what the heck you know and she's kept trying to start her car she's a young woman alone and somewhat 
feeling vulnerable and can't get her car started for the entire duration this UFO was there, which was about 20 minutes. And finally, this object drives off and her car starts and she gets onto the freeway and there's a huge accident. And she's like, if she had not been delayed, she fears that she would have been involved in that accident. So it's not direct proof of intervention, but she feels that was her conclusion that they basically delayed her. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got, you know, another case involving Dolly Safran uh, from my book, Symmetry. And I, I believe she was on the show. Yes, yes, we had her on. Yeah, she had that sort of thing happen uh, where a UFO showed up and slowed her down and there was an accident ahead of her. It's like, oh my God, her her co-passenger was like, oh, oh my God, that's amazing. This thing showed up and stopped us. So it's not just one person saying this. She had another incident where she was lost. It was a stormy night. They were really tired from having helped move somebody and uh, were trying to get home, but had gotten lost. And that's when her contact, Talata, the ship, comes swooping down. And the person she was driving with was, had never seen a UFO. She's like, oh, my God, what is that? Dolly's like, what do you think it is? She said, it looks like a UFO. And it was. It was Talata, the ship, which basically said, turn around. You're going the wrong direction. I'll lead you out to the road that you're supposed to be on. So quite a few cases like that. There was one case from R.D. Six Killer Clark, who is a fantastic researcher. He's interviewed you know, thousands of people, uh, mostly indigenous people from you know, South America, Mexico, and all across the U.S. And uh, she had a case involving a group of people in a village who were being slaughtered by this hurricane when this massive mothership comes down and stops the wind and the rain, uh, basically protects this village from being leveled by these hurricane-force winds. That's the only case I could find of that. But wow. I found other cases. One guy was, I couldn't find it, but I remember reading it in the MUFON journal. It's somewhere in there. <laughs> the guy who was next to a refrigerator that came and fell down on, on him, and he couldn't get out from under it. And the grays showed up and lifted the refrigerator up and freed him. He's like, they're my friends. They rescued me. Hmm. Why do you yeah. think it is that, that the will assist certain people while other people will end up you know becoming a victim of these certain accidents well you're asking me to speculate so i don't know i don't know no uh but i think there's some indications as to why uh, a lot of these cases do involve contactees people who have regular contact and are mm -hmm. working with the ets so i think they kind of watch over but some of these are one-offs. I mean, there was one lady in Norway who reached out to me. She, she says, you're the guy who's researching healings, right? I'm like, yeah. She says, I had this crazy event happen uh, where these grays came in and flipped me around like a rag doll on my bed. She's like, I'm screaming at them. She says, it was really scary. But they held this cylindrical instrument against my back. When she said that, I'm like, ooh, I've heard this instrument before, and I know what she's going to say. Mm -hmm. uh, she says, they healed me of chronic back pain. She injured herself real bad in an accident. 
and basically had to retire from her work as a graphic artist. So I interviewed her about the whole incident, and it lasted just a couple of minutes. These were greys. They came in, they flipped her around, pressed this instrument to get her back, and exited through the wall. <laughs> she jumped up and looked outside, and there was this eerie blue glow. Mm-hmm. And she runs to the window, and it snaps out. It's all dark. There's nothing out there that she can see. She's like, huh. And that's when she realized her back was healed. She's like, oh my God, they healed me. And so I asked her, I'm like, well, do you have a history of encounters? She says, no, no, none. Nothing like this has ever happened to me. I'm like, are you sure? Any weird events in childhood, little figures coming in, balls of light, missing time, scars on your body. I went through the whole list. She's like, no, 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 no. Ever see a UFO? She says, well, once, but there was a crowd of people there, and it was this tiny little dot in the sky that flitted across the sky. It wasn't a personal event. So she didn't fit the pattern. Uh, and then I asked her, what, what do you do for a living? And that's when she says, well, I'm a retired uh, graphic artist, but please don't use my name. I really want to be anonymous because I'm getting quite well known in my country right now. I do human rights and animal rights activism. Mm-hmm. And that rang a bell for me because I thought, oh my gosh, isn't Betty Hill a social worker? John Hunter Gray, who was healed, was a social worker. He was a Native American who fought for Native American rights. But, oh my gosh, Michael Carter, who's pretty well known in this field. I know. <laughs> um, he was healed of a blood clot. Yeah. Such a nice guy. He was given an award by President Clinton for his work against racism. Yeah, and, he's uh, awesome. Yeah, he's amazing. The nicest guy. And an author and a healer himself. Uh, so, this is a pattern that does turn up. They will, they're helping those who help others. Uh, the lady who was rescued from drowning that I mentioned in Rotenburg, Germany, she's a healer. Uh, and her husband, they were driving through Sedona and they were invited on board. She says, we weren't abducted. We were invited on board. And, uh, he was healed of carpal tunnel syndrome and a bad knee. <laughs> so I think that's why they heal some people because they're helping. Uh, but there's another lady I interviewed uh, who had a car accident in Georgia, which basically should have been fatal. And uh, the first responders could not believe she was alive, could not believe she wasn't torn up to bits because she had been pushed through the windshield. They found her outside the car, which they couldn't fully understand. Uh, so there's some questions about what had happened in this car accident, but the car was so completely totaled. She should not have survived it. And as an adult, she was having a lot of experiences and eventually became a fully conscious contactee. But at that point, she didn't remember anything about this accident until she went under hypnosis and recalled that uh, Grays showed up, pulled her from the accident, and told her your brainstem had been severed. You weren't, you actually died. You were not supposed to die in this accident. And uh, they healed her and healed all the scars on her face and put her back in the scene of the accident. And before they did, this took about an hour, maybe two, to completely fix her up. They put her back just minutes later, uh, before the first responders got there. And uh, before they put her back, they told her, you weren't supposed to die, uh, and we're going to heal most of your injuries, but we cannot heal all of them. You chose this accident, 
there's a karmic lesson here that you chose to have. So you're going to have to, we can't heal all these injuries. Uh, there's karmic laws. And that really interested me because I'm like, whoa, ETs know about karma, huh? <laughs> That's not a human concept. And there's another case in England involving a gentleman in a motorcycle accident who was told the same thing. Almost, you know, right down the line, they told him he would have passed away if not for their intervention. And they're only helping him because he has important work to do, helping others, but they could not heal all his injuries mm -hmm. due to karmic reasons. So I think there's a lot of things going on here. That's interesting because it sounds very similar to some of the experiences that people have interviewed that have had near-death experiences. They've had near-death experiences, and they come back healed of, of you know, they have a near-death experience from, like, getting hit by a car, but come back healed of, like, cancer. Yes. I have a family friend who was expected to pass away from cancer. She had a near-death experience and came back and was gone. Could, the doctors could not believe it. They absolutely did not understand. They thought it was miraculous. And uh, if you look into the literature on near-death experiences, you'll see quite a bit of this. Mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, there is something very interesting going on here because I've done a lot of research into astral projection mm -hmm. as well. And those accounts turn up. I found like 20 of them. Experienced it myself a little bit. Not so much a healing of an illness, but I did go to a healing temple on the other side, which was the coolest thing you would ever want to have happen. Oh my God. Uh, I came away just zinging with energy. It was amazing. And also, you know, this does come up in past life regressions. Uh, apparently, we carry a lot of trauma from past life incidents, and uh, this can cause illness. Because there are case after case of people who've had past life regressions and come away from it healed, physically healed of an illness. Eczema was one. Uh, this kid had a tumor in his throat and it disappeared. It just shrunk after his regression because he remembered being like shot in the neck in the Civil War. Mm. And apparently it created this trauma uh, that he carried over into the present lifetime. By remembering it, he released it. So do you think that there's any connection between, or any difference even, between some of the extraterrestrial contact and these healing events, near-death experience, and what sometimes people will call angelic encounters? Yeah, I do. I think these are separate events with remarkable commonalities, but it's not, we're not living in a matrix uh, the UFO phenomena is not an intelligence that puts on different masks. This is my opinion, mm -hmm. but I think based on the actual evidence, uh, I think these are separate phenomena. A lot of stuff gets put under the UFO umbrella and called paranormal or unexplained. Paranormal is a misnomer. It's what we're really talking about here is we don't understand. <laughs> we haven't fully categorized this. We, we love labels. We love to try to you know, label everything. Uh, yes. And I think that's our efforts to understand. But mm -hmm. as near as I can tell, a near-death experience is completely different than a UFO encounter. There, there are completely different patterns going on here. I will say, in terms of angelic encounters and UFO encounters, I think there's some difficulty interpreting this. 
because uh, if you have a glowing being of light come down and heal you in your hospital room or where, what have you, how are you going to interpret this? Our belief systems play a powerful role in how we see things. I've had people say, oh, it was a demon. I was visited by a demon. I'm like, just tell me what happened. Oh, there was this figure. It was on my bed. And it had this huge head and big dark eyes. Like, okay, this sounds like a grave, which they haven't heard of. But they're religious, so that's their go-to. And uh, having talked to a lot of people, I think some were saying angels. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to look into this whole angelic phenomenon, demonic for that matter. And I did. I bought every book I could find on both of these. <laughs> and uh, there's some compelling stories out there. I think probably there's truth. Certainly, I think there is. Oh, absolutely. To, uh, you know, spiritual phenomena, non-human spirits, both good and bad. I think probably angels are real. Uh, but, I, you know, if you go into the past and all these people are describing what they think are angels, I think some of these are probably E.T. Mm -hmm. And uh, there, I got some indication that that's true. <laughs> I mean, if you look at these accounts, they sound like UFOs and E.T.s. But one lady in Maine, I interviewed her, and they told her flat out, who you thought were angels, a lot of times that was us. I'm like, <laughs> That doesn't surprise me that they told her that, because I think that that's probably true. Mm -hmm. I can't prove it, but you know, Jacques Vallée has talked a lot about how these two phenomena can sometimes be mixed motif cases or conflated together. How is it you think, why do you think that they would be concerned about human karma? That's an interesting um, thing, too, because that tells me that they're not just um, biological conscious beings, but they're also spiritual. Yeah, um, they sure are. And I think initially, the UFO phenomena and the study of it has gone through quite a bit of difficulties because humans do their best, I think. <laughs> but when you know the modern age of UFO be began in the late 1940s, uh, this was largely unprecedented in terms of the huge number of encounters. And UFO organizations ignored humanoid accounts, would not research them. Uh, and it took you know, Charles Bowen, in his book, The Humanoids, and Jim and Coral Lorenzen, uh, their book, Abducted, I think it was, and The Humanoids, and uh, Eddie and Barney Hill, that case, before anyone started paying attention to the fact that there's probably somebody inside these things. <laughs> and crash retrieval reports were, again, ignored for even longer. Nobody wanted to study them. Uh, so I think it's been a long road to getting people to actually accept the fact that these are even real. And we had a lot of people, researchers, who were very nuts and bolts. I'm like, no, I'm not going to talk about telepathy or levitation or healing or anything except the fact that this is a solid craft that leaves landing traces and appears on radar and can be photographed. Hmm. And they ignored all the other paranormal, quote, paranormal aspects to this. I know this is true, actually, because I've talked to people who were you know, hypnotized by some major researchers out there who refused to include the spiritual aspects, the healings and the other stuff, the psychic stuff, in the accounts that were written up. 
uh, in books about their case, uh, which is why from the very beginning, you know, as someone who really is trying to be objective, I am not going to exclude data from a person's account. That's not going to solve any mysteries. I think it's a huge mistake. I remember the first time one weird aspect, this guy was telling me, well, this UFO turned transparent as it went away. I'm like, mm, gosh, I've never heard this before. This was one of my very early cases. But I included it, and I'm glad I did, uh, because I started hearing other cases, and certainly reading about other cases. And so I think it's very important, because there is a huge spiritual aspect to all of this. A, lo a lot of people, as a general rule, I and mean, I've said this millions of times, contactees are very psychic, as a rule. They have a lot of paranormal stuff surrounding them. And uh, let's face it, when a person is taken on board, communication is almost exclusively telepathic. Mm -hmm. We look upon that as psychic. It's not really paranormal or supernatural at all. These are all natural human abilities. I don't know why people are so reluctant to accept the fact that these things happen. Telepathy has been studied in a laboratory setting and proven as has telekinesis, mm. as has levitation, as has all these phenomena. If you research the literature on it, there have been fully objective scientific studies, and yet still mainstream science is dragging its feet, I think largely because there's a cover-up, and the folks who are covering this up are doing their darndest to dumb us down and drug us up and <laughs> um, keep all this knowledge away from people. Why do you think they do that? Why did it, Why is there a cover-up? <clears throat> Especially, you know, like I, you, you, we've talked many, many times, and I'm, I, I totally believe that they are here to try to help us. They, they're doing their own disclosure because our governments will not disclose. Um, yep. And, you know, the telepathy, and, and the healing seems to be a big part of it. And, you know, that's why you're one of my, you, Michael, Kathleen Martin, like, you're like my favorite guests, because I believe that there's a message here for humanity, that they want us to recognize, one, our own ability, and help us to act, reactivate it. Because I think it was active probably at one point, and then it um, went dormant, and now we're trying to come back to the race of beings that we originally were. Somehow we lost our way, I think. Um, and I, know, I kind of forgot where I was going. <laughs> but, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and I think this is, this is one of the driving forces behind the cover-up. Uh, it's because these folks who are doing the covering up will lose their position of power, their control over humanity, if we do wake up. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, it's an alien threat, alien threat. First of all, these aren't aliens. They're, even the term extraterrestrial is, a, I'm not sure it's the best term. Mm -hmm. This whole field suffers from semantic disaster. <laughs> these are people. That is all they are. Huh. Uh, and to label them as anything other than someone like us is, I think, misguided. These are people. We are not alone in this universe. 
And uh, our governments, our secret governments, the cabal, you know, the Illuminati, call them what you will, the one percenters, uh, know this. And there is an alien threat to them, mm-hmm. much of the people. These are people like us. <laughs> they are our friends. They are brothers and sisters. They are our progenitors. Our relationship to them is much closer than people realize. They don't look upon us as ants. No, we're not animals being experimented on. That's absolutely false. It's a false narrative being very vehemently put forth by the cabal. Uh, It's not true. Mm -hmm. Most major researchers, I think, agree with this and will say that they do have many healing cases and many cases in which spiritual information is imparted and guidance and people being taught how to fly the craft and so forth. Uh, and the cabal uh, knows this and knows that they are going to lose power over humanity. Well, they're going to lose their wealth. They're going to lose their control. That's the threat to them. And thank God, because I am done with them. I think this is their last hurrah. Uh, there's just no way this is sustainable. We're not supposed to be living this way. Uh, we're supposed to be living in peace and harmony not selling weapons to different countries and then encouraging to fight each other. Not putting poison in our food and water and our air. It's ridiculous. This can't go on. And I think that's why ETs are like, all right, once we started dropping nuclear weapons, or not us, but, you know, these government folks. Mm -hmm. ETs are like, here we go again. Guess we're going to have to step in and did reach out to the governments who were not receptive and said, okay, fine, we'll go to the people and are conducting a massive grassroots campaign uh, of showing themselves and imparting knowledge and healing to the extent that they can without doing everything for us. Because, Hmm. you know, every parent knows you can't feed your child with a spoon and tie their shoes and, you know, get their job for them and do everything for them, they will go out into the real world and die. People have to learn how to solve their own problems. ETs know this. And so they will help to the extent that they can without violating our autonomy and our free will and our karmic lessons. So we've made our own beds. It's up to us to fix things. They will help to the extent that they can. The funny thing, the interesting thing that I think about that is even when the Illuminati, Cabal, whatever you want to call it, loses its power, essentially they're not losing their power because the entire world regains its power, its control over its own destiny. So what they're doing is almost doomed to fail. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think they've made very poor decisions. And I thought about this a lot. I'm like, who is really in control of this planet? Uh, because we do have unequal distribution of wealth and a lot of divisiveness. But there's also this pattern towards progress. You know, it's almost inevitable that sooner or later people are going to evolve spiritually. And after looking at all the power structures that's going on here, I mean, we have a federalized government. ETs don't. <laughs> 
have anything like that. They're a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Okay, who, what's going on here? Who's in control of the, the world? Is it the cabal? No, I don't think so. ETs aren't controlling the world. They're helping where they can. No, I think there's very enlightened people out there, spiritual masters, you might call them. All cultures have people who've reached very high levels of you know, attainment. Yeah. Sort of, uh, I thought, well, maybe they're the ones who are, you know, sort of in control. But no, they're very laissez-faire. They don't step down and save everybody, but they will help guide people down a spiritual path and towards enlightenment and knowledge. Well, ultimately, I think the real power structure on this planet is the people at large, the public, all of humanity is the greatest force on this planet. This is my opinion, but I kind of feel that way because when an idea's time has come, nothing's going to stop it. It comes rolling into society like a tidal wave. And if you know one person doesn't discover calculus, another will. You know, that's what happened with pottery as well. You'll see all kinds of inventions that have hit humanity mm-hmm. when they're being discovered different places on the planet. And it just sweeps over and we reach a new level of understanding. So ultimately, I think, the, I don't know if it's the universe doing this or what, you know, the all mind, what have you, the spirit which moves through all things, God, call it what you will. Uh, but I feel like humanity is the most powerful force in this planet. And that's why we need to just come together and recognize that what the ETs are telling people, contactees, we are all one. You are us. We are you. We are one. Mm. And, you, and you bring up the topic in, in your book too. Um, you know, the, the, the what people always say: Well, why have they not just landed on the White House lawn? And you bring up that crucial fact: They have, and they've done it more than once. <laughs> yeah, this was chapter ten of this latest book because I'm. Everyone's like, take me to your leader. It's so cliche. <laughs> I found like a thousand cartoons of that. It was yep. fun as hell. Uh, and I looked into it because, of course, there's the very famous Jimmy Carter sighting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Ronald Reagan sighting. I'm like, hey, these are presidents who are right. seeing UFOs. Eisenhower had a meeting. Right. And uh, I heard a quote from Jimmy Carter who said, basically, I wonder if this was a sign, if they're meant to show themselves to me and I'm supposed to run for political office. This was before he was, you know, when he was running for governor. I thought, huh, that's kind of an interesting insight there. Uh, And I started looking into it because I remember reading that the president of Brazil had seen a UFO. And I looked it up and like, he did. I started going through all the literature on this. And Mm. this was a, deep dive you know this took quite a bit of research but i was amazed to find how many world leaders and people heads of states and various levels of office have seen ufos i mean we have governors like fife symington or of arizona or john gilligan of ohio or ronald reagan um, of uh, california all saw ufos when they were governor and there's a lot of them actually um, senators, representatives, governors, all across the U.S., and, of course, the, the world, too. The president of Iran, even Idi Amin, <laughs> who was mm, not a good man. If, if you know anything about Idi Amin, he's 
got a horrible, heinous history of slaughter. Hmm. He had an encounter. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, president of yeah, Mexico, president of Brazil, um, even uh, recently, a guy from uh, Kalmykia in Russia claims he was actually taken on board and saw a you know ETs face to face. Do you think, or have you heard any reports, you know, with the war, like, in between Russia and Ukraine, and now there is, like, this serious threat of nuclear use of weapons, use of nuclear weapons, has there been any more, any sightings reported in that area, or by people that are out there fighting, that you've heard? Um, I've heard reports of it, you know, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation out there. And there's just this huge rash of um, reports of UFOs over Ukraine during the conflict. And some clearly sound like disinformation to me, where the UFOs are destroying Russian tanks or something. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. They don't generally do that. I've never heard of them act taking sides. Mm -hmm. They don't do that. Uh, so I don't know how much of this is true or not. But certainly they have appeared over conflicts throughout history. Vietnam, there was a whole bunch of reports during the Korean War as well. So I think there might be some truth to it. I don't think we can count on them to intervene right. to stop nuclear disaster. Because where were they uh, over with Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I asked Dolly Saffron about this. And she became quite sober and said, well, listen, they did know about this. And they couldn't stop it. This was our choice. If they had stopped this conflict, we would never understand the consequences of it. She says they have intervened. There's been times when events were in progress to lead towards absolutely disastrous events where they have intervened. It's very much behind the scenes. They don't announce it. And certainly our governments are not going to talk about it. Um, but they do intervene. And they will send, I mean, look at the Malmstrom incident, 1967 in Montana, where they shut down our ICBMs. That was a very in-your-face intervention. Like, what are you doing? You're on the path to self-destruction. Uh, but yeah, I think they will intervene to a certain extent, but we still have to learn our own lessons. Hence, we have Three Mile Island uh, in Pennsylvania, I think it was, which I did find reports of UFOs over mm -hmm. the reactor. <laughs> But, you know, there's also Fukushima, which again had reports of UFOs there, but it still happened. And Chernobyl and, you know, the Hanford nuclear power plant leaks. And hey, there's a bunch in Southern California over the Santa Susana area where they were doing nuclear tests. A lot of UFO activity there as well. But they're watching over everything nuclear very closely because... Uh, According to contactees, when we explode nuclear bombs, it's not just ourselves and our planet we're destroying. It's rippling into different dimensions and causing havoc. So this is when they came down in large numbers and said, we have got to stop these earthlings. They're going to destroy themselves again. This is not our first go around with this. No, there have been other advances. Reportedly, I think it's like our fourth time around, right? Yeah, fourth or fifth. Yeah. Oh. So hopefully we can figure it out this time, but doesn't look good. 
pretty upset at these one percenters. It's like, really? Just think this through. <laughs> Do you not realize that there are karmic laws? What's going to happen when these people pass away and realize that they're going to have to face the music? Hmm. Well, it's unfortunate. What do you think about us going back to the moon after being away for so long? And why do you think it's been so long? Um, well, this is not my area of expertise, but oh, I've certainly studied it because I did interview a gentleman who was a photographer on the ships that picked up the astronauts. He's mm -hmm. like, I'm a petty photographer, and boom, I found myself at this top-secret clearance. I'm talking directly to the astronauts. They're going out of their minds because they saw this stuff on the moon. And I go, no, the moon, I better look into this. And found out, yes, the evidence of UFOs and alien bases on the moon is really compelling. There is step on the moon. <laughs> There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, if you look into this, it's shocking because it has been effectively covered up for years. But it doesn't take a lot of research to realize NASA stands for never a straight answer. <laughs> <laughs> National Aeronautics Space Administration. And uh, yeah, suddenly we stopped. And according to the buzz in the UFO community, is that we were warned off. Right. We were told, oh, you're not going to explode stuff on the moon. <laughs> you're out of your minds. We will not let you do this. You are quarantined until you grow up. Uh, and now we're going back. And uh, apparently, you know, our planet is going through a lot of things right now. Dolly Saffron is kind of my go-to gal when I have questions. Mm -hmm. And she says the ETs have bugged out. She says our uh, magnetic field is collapsing. Our sun is on the verge of having massive coronal mass ejections, which are going to knock out our electrical grid. The UFOs can't fly around now. They bugged out. So this offers the one percenters an opportunity to do what the heck they want. Uh, so that could be why. Um, again, this is, I'm more focused on contactee accounts. Mm -hmm. What our evil governments are doing. I shouldn't say that evil. They're not all evil. <laughs> there are good people. I love Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he's, he's probably one of the most altruistic presidents we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Some of the others, because if you look into them, I'm like, mm, just not so happy with them. But I think there were, there are great politicians out there, really lovely people. But a lot, no. Uh, and I think a lot of them are have their hands tied, are just doing the best they can against this cabal who will use ruthless means and do whatever it takes, including you know, not only blackmail or threats, but actual murder to stop people from revealing the truth. I mean, look at Kennedy. That's supposedly what happened to him. Mm -hmm. uh, so, hmm. We're in a real situation here. Hmm. Uh, and I think, yeah, probably that's what's behind the recent missions towards the moon. So it's, not that, so it's not that we've grown up enough. It's just no. these 1% people. We'll grow up when we stop killing each other. It, it's always shocked. You know, I put out a healing video recently on my YouTube channel. And there's always a segment of the people who come at me like, they're not here to heal us. You know, they're raping and they're killing and they're murdering and brutalizing. I'm like, oh, hold on a second. You know, sh show me a case where they've ever beat someone up 
I'd like to know, because that's what we do. Show me a case where they've murdered large groups of people, because that's us. Mm-hmm. It's us imposing our own cultural values. Well, values, I shouldn't even call them values. And I'm not going to say that every person's experience with ETs is pleasant and fun and lollipops and rainbows and puppies because we're so damn fearful. And uh, I'm very much respect people who feel like they've had a negative experience because my heart goes out to them. If you're having nightmares and you you feel like you were kidnapped against your will and you don't want this experience, I understand 100%. But I always very carefully talk to them and I want to know what actually did they do to you that's so horrible and usually it's something along the lines of a physical exam Mm -hmm. uh, or they feel like perhaps their health suffered in some way uh, which if you carefully examine it it's mm, not always people have tend to put corroborations together like I I had cancer following my encounter I'm like well maybe they were trying to cure you uh, because I have some 30 cases of that uh, but yeah, it's not always fun having contact with ETs. And I understand that people have a lot of fear surrounding it. But the vast majority of contactees I talk to at some point, you know, after like the third or fourth or fifth time they're taken on board, and ETs once again say, don't be afraid. <laughs> we won't hurt you. Uh, they realize, like, okay, maybe they are here to help me. Because as a rule, they all start having out-of-body experiences and healing and telekinesis and precognition and, and good, huge awakenings spiritually. And I can't find a researcher out there worth their salt who has you know, researched more than 10 or 20 cases of people who have been taken on board who doesn't have a healing case. Right. You know, they all do. Kathleen Martin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Beckley, Brad Steiger, of course, the big three, John Mack, Bud Hopkins, and David Jacobs. But Edith Fiore, Ray Hernandez, uh, Philip Hesseman, uh, Philip Hesseman, John Hesseman, no, Michael Hesseman, <laughs> uh, Michael Hesseman, Philip Mantle, Timothy Good, they all, all of them have healing cases. Do you think that they're trying to reactivate? some of the abilities that we've lost over time or were taken away from us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure when that happened. I think it's very early on, you know, obviously thousands of years ago, but telepathy has never fully gone away. You know, a couple of hundred years ago, accounts of telepathy were very common. People relied on their dreams to figure out what's going on elsewhere. Um, Mark Twain was very psychic. He talked quite a bit about it and <laughs> um, his experiment, experiments and experiences with telepathy was 100% convinced. And in those days, it was much more common. Um, I've got several accounts of this. I'm going to write a book on this because uh, this was something people relied upon right. much more than we do today. We have cell phones. Cell phones were never invented Everything technology does, we can do spiritually. You know, even cars, the teleportation is a real thing. There's a group of, uh, one guy, what's his name, Dushan Gursi, traveled the world. He's an anthropologist studying 
um, the spiritual practices of various cultures. And he ran into a group of people called the Flying Men. And he studied them. They have the ability of teleportation. He watched it happen. And he did, he did this in different cultures. He found another group. They called them the ca Cassowary Men, after the Cassowary Birds. Because mm -hmm. they teleport, they have these little feathers go behind them. And he says, you know what? <laughs> this is very much like the flying carpets in the Middle East, because which have a fringe on the car carpets, which relates to the witches and witches' brooms, which has that same sort of effect on, of the broom. He says it's just a visual effect that happens when someone teleports. And it's the same in each culture, and it, it's been labeled differently the same visual effect appears. It's like there's probably little qualitative difference between witches on their brooms and magicians on their flying carpets and the cassowary men of Africa or, you know, sorcerers who could have this ability. Uh, it's very interesting stuff to dive deep. We all have these abilities. Telepathy, telekinesis, healing. In this latest book, not Premier Volume 4, I did a chapter on levitation. <laughs> yeah, you did. What are, some, what are some of the stories on the levitation, and how did it correspond like with the UFO phenomenon? Yeah, I wanted to include that chapter because after talking to Dolly Safran, I'm like, Dolly, I don't suppose you've levitated <laughs> uh, at any point. And she's like, well, yeah, actually I have. And she described like four incidents. Once as a very young child, she levitated into the closet, then, as a kid, she jumped from tree to tree while climbing and basically floating, yep. jumping off the roof and floating down. And all the way up to age 19 was her last real levitation experience where she tripped and floated down the stairs. And the reason I asked her that is because I had read an account from Whitley Strieber, who in 1986, I think it was, found himself floating on the ceiling of his <laughs> house. Looked down and saw his bed. His wife is sleeping there. He's not in it. This is not an out-of-body experience. This is not a UFO lifting them up a beam of light. He's spontaneously levitating. And I instantly remembered Stephen Greer's account. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I looked back in his book, and sure enough, he was let out of his Uf this UFO in 1973, age 19. It was a very benevolent experience. He went and meditated with the Greys, <laughs> and... He steps out of the craft and starts walking home, and he's actually floated home. It's like bounding, taking big 20-foot leaps. Mm. Later, some years later, had another levitation experience. Spontaneous. But, oh, my God, Jacques Vallée has a case. <laughs> Dr. X, it's a very famous case of a medical doctor who was healed. And following his experience, he had two spontaneous levitation events. Uh, which he couldn't control and quite frightened him. But uh, absolutely, this is an after effect. Do you think it's like a side effect of after an, an encounter? Yeah. It took me a while to figure out what's going on here, but we ha all have this ability, right? This is something that's latent within us and just needs to be worked on and developed. And when someone has an encounter, it absolutely awakens them psychically, it gives them a boost. We have a bioelectric field. Levitation is connected to our astral body, uh, which is what most levitation researchers believe. Uh, I wrote a book on levitation, so 
Uh, I've certainly collected a lot of accounts. Robert Monroe was the out-of-body guy. Mm -hmm. Two levitation experiences, as did Marilyn Hughes, as did a, a few others. So it's connected to that. And uh, when someone has regular contact, their bioelectric field expands uh, and becomes really powerful. And they walk under streetlights. They go out. They blow out light bulbs. And one lady I interviewed in Washington, she had a contact. That morning she goes to work, blows out her computer, <laughs> calls the IT guy. She's like, fix my computer. It broke. And goes to the copier and bam, puts it offline. She's like, excuse me, after you're done with my computer, <laughs> copier <laughs> goes to the fax machine and blows that out. Uh, so this, I've got contactee after contactee who deals with this. They're like, I can't wear watches. Cannot, you know, anytime I walk by a TV, it'll fuzz up. Uh, their light bulb budget is out of control. It's been so, because they're blowing out light bulbs. This is the bioelectric field that is expanded to a degree that's actually affecting electromagnetic instruments. So this is, I think, what's going on here is that people are levitating because they've been ignited or this ability has been activated. Mm. Even the yogis, you know, like in, in uh, the book, um, Autobiography of a Yogi, he talks about levitation as being a side effect of spiritual enlightenment. Yes. These, all these so-called superhuman powers, according to Eastern tradition, they've got mapped this out as like a science. They're called cities, S-I-D-D-H-E-S. Uh, and these are obstacles or opportunities. They use different words. But for some people, that can be a distraction uh, because people will become enamored by them and like, look what I can do. I can walk on water. Mm -hmm. I can levitate. Or, you know, I have superhuman strength or immunity to fire or multiplication of food or all these different abilities. And these manifest on your pathway to spiritual enlightenment. They're markers which allow a person to see you know, what level they're at. But you're not supposed to really pay attention to them too much because there can be distractions. And really what enlightenment is all about is you know, knowledge and raising your consciousness and your awareness and your connection and you know, becoming a fully realized human being. It's not about what you can do. It's about you know, what you know and your ability to perceive this sort of thing. But yeah, this is something we can all do. And when I did a book on levitation, I'm like, wow, most people who are levitating are yogis, are nuns and monks, are sorcerers or medicine men or the holy person of that culture. But a lot of children spontaneously levitate and housewives and businessmen and you know, anybody. <laughs> um, but definitely contactees. Oh my God. Every time I bring this up on a podcast, well, not every time, but I was talking to Ray Hernandez about this. And he's like, oh, my contactee friend, Alberto Fernandez, had that happen. I was talking to another guy. He's like, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I never tell people this. But that happened to me when I was a kid. Uh, he's a contactee. He's like, I don't tell, talk about it because people will roll your eye, their eyes at you. And uh, he spontaneously levitated. I interviewed several people who had this experience. I think it's possible simply because 
I'm not 100% sure or convinced that matter actually exists. <laughs> yeah, well, just talk to any quantum physicist. Mm -hmm. Matter is, in essence, energy. Crystallized energy is one way I think of looking at it. But matter itself is just uh, energy. It's light, solidified to a certain degree. And this is why I think ETs can so easily walk through walls. Uh, and we can too, by the way. I was doing a bunch of research on that. I discovered this during my research into levitation. There was a girl in England, Janet Harper, who was going through this intense haunting, uh, poltergeist haunting. And poltergeist hauntings are in some ways uncontrolled mediumship mm -hmm. uh, and psychokinetic energy that's just running rampant and wild. She was twice pulled through the wall. And Brazil's greatest medium ever, Carmine Mirabelli, um, put himself forward to all the scientists of his era and said, you can study me, sure, and demonstrated his ability. He went right through the wall. And they had him locked up in chains and handcuffs and the whole deal. He still levitated. And boom, went through the wall. Uh, so, yeah, matter is not what people think it is. It's... It's all energy. It's all light. That's the construct of our universe. Right. So why, so so why would levitation be so unbelievable? <laughs> exactly. It, it, I mean, it's in every culture. Accounts stretch back thousands of years, mm -hmm. and I will say it's been proven in a laboratory setting uh, more than once. There was the Carmine Mirabelli case. Eusapia Palladino traveled across Europe, convincing one scientist after another of her ability to levitate. And they could not figure it out. And uh, Hereward Carrington also put this in a laboratory setting and did a really cool experiment, which I wish people would duplicate. He got a table and four sitters. Uh, no, not a Got four people to sit around one person. You know this game, the finger levitation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, where people do some rhythmic breathing, and then try to lift a person up. He put them all on a large scale and weighed them. And they were, you know, somewhere between 400 and 500 pounds. Had them all do rhythmic breathing and then try to levitate the person in the center. And they did this. And on the first time, there was a, a recorded loss of weight of somewhere around 52 pounds. Did it again, it was 47 pounds. Did it again, it was like 51, and then 46, and then over and over and over again. And it was always somewhere between like 46 to 52 pounds loss of weight. Uh, it's absolutely scientifically verified. Uh, it's, I'm not sure anyone's duplicated that particular experiment, but it wouldn't be hard to do. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Um. Fourth of July is another thing that you cover. You know, like I mean, I'm thinking, I thought about this for a little bit. I said, well, it makes sense because everybody, that's one night that everybody's looking up at the sky. Do you think that's yeah. the reason or do you think they're just attracted by the explosions in the atmosphere? I think it's both. It's funny. Initially, I thought there's nothing going on here. <laughs> These are fireworks. You're telling me you saw a UFO on the 4th of July? Get real. That was a fireworks. This is kind of, you know, as finding out UFOs were real, ironically made me even more skeptical because <laughs> I really had to reevaluate everything. 
And when I started receiving Fourth of July reports, I'm like, mm, no, I don't. But some people were describing ships with mm-hmm. portholes and clearly structured craft. And after hearing some buzz about this on the internet, like, oh, you know, UFOs come down on the 4th of July. I'm like, mm, let's look into this. Fine. Uh, and uh, I got a huge shock when I went to the databases of MUFON and Newfork, uh, National UFO Reporting Center and the Mutual UFO Network. And not only is July the most common time to see a UFO, I mean, the number of reports spike heavily. But the 4th of July is hands down the most common day to see a UFO. And I started wading through these reports and it dried out my eyeballs because there is, you know, average number of reports on MUFON or Newfark is, you know, 5 to 20 daily. And on July 4th, it's 50, it's 100. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is a thousand cases I'm going to have to look through. You know, several thousand. But I did stretching back as far as these databases go. And I got a real shock because, yes, this is a very common day to see a UFO. A lot of these reports are orbs, orange glowing, fiery orbs. And examining them carefully, I came to the conclusion that a good portion of them are what we would call sky lanterns, mm-hmm. party lanterns, you know, a little candle inside of a paper bag or balloon or whatever yep. sent aloft. But there's far too many of them <laughs> for them to all be sky lanterns. And after studying sky lanterns and looking at all the videos of them and seeing some firsthand, uh, it's clear that some of these are sky lanterns, but some aren't. Because sky lanterns can only reach a height of 4,000 feet and cannot last much longer than 15 minutes. And while can appear to dart or hover, cannot uh hover, you know, zip across the sky in one second. And if you go through all these accounts, some of these orbs are behaving in ways that absolutely exclude the sky lantern theory. And there's a good portion, which are structured craft with portholes and moving in ways that cannot, I mean, there's some involving humanoids. People are seeing this craft come down and looking through the portholes and seeing Nordic beings or you know, human looking beings. And, uh, it's clear, according to the witnesses, they believe that they are showing up at the beginning of this fireworks display and leaving when it ends. But after examining all these cases, it was clear to me that the ETs, and I believe that's what we're dealing with here, uh, are coming down and using the 4th of July as an opportunity to announce their presence to a large group of people who are out there looking up. Mm. There are millions of people outside at night on the 4th of July. What better opportunity? I thought, you know, these aren't even, you know, these are technically, according to the J. Allen Hynek system, you know, close encounters of the first kind, simple sightings, as opposed to the second kind, which affects the environment, or the third, which is direct contact. But technically, every single one of these is a close encounter of the fifth kind, human initiated because they are in essence coming down as a result of us setting off fireworks and uh, you know i was right there on the forefront of the ce5 movement because i published an article called calling all ufos in which this 
special effects expert for NBC, had several cases. I published this in UFO Universe magazine. And when I met Stephen Greer, when he was forming CSETI, um, he's like, I really got to thank you. I saw that article. <laughs> and he said, that's what inspired me to form CSETI. He says, you really gave me a kick in the butt there. I can't thank you enough. Because that's when he got the impetus to you know, form his CE5 protocols mm -hmm. using lights and meditation, which I think is far more effective, actually, than lights. But this is absolutely a thing. And the, these 4th of July cases are so cool. <laughs> if I could just cite one case, which to me is kind of poignant. Yeah. It involves a mother and a son. You know, they're kind of alone in the world. This is in Glen, Mississippi in 1988. This occurs every year, by the way. <laughs> I had to exclude a lot of cases because it just got... I, I almost wrote a book on just this. But I'm like, no, let's just use a chapter because it was starting to get a little repetitive. But in 1988, this the mother was in the doorway watching her young son shoot off little fireworks, you know, handheld fireworks. And uh, after several minutes of doing this, a group, a little fleet of UFOs came swooping down and put on a display for just the two of them. And they said these were fairly large ob objects, you know, about the size of a pickup truck, they estimate. Sort of V-shaped, uh, half disc, sort of. And we're darting around and putting on this whole display. And this is what they do. <laughs> this is why I think it's more than just them watching the fireworks. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, you want a fireworks display? Watch this. And they'll release smaller craft. They'll flash their lights. This is very much like the schoolyard encounters, which I did a book on, or the movie the drive driving movie ones yes yeah. it reminds me of same thing they'll come right down very low level put on a long lasting display and that's what they did for this mother and son hmm. and it lasted 15 minutes and probably would have gone longer if the military hadn't shown up and chased them away which they do in a number of these cases hmm. so, <laughs> that's just one of so many cases that i found I mean, I could have listed several hundred. I just put in the, I think about 40 of the best ones. Uh, but some of these have gotten into newspapers. They were very widely viewed. Hundreds of witnesses videotaped. Uh, Beverly Trout, she's a Midwest researcher, really buckled down in her investigation on one of these and interviewed some 48 people who were present in Missouri and all these different cities when this UFO put on this massive display on the 4th of July. It was amazing. Hmm. Wow. So, man, that's, I could talk to you all day, man. You know that? <laughs> About these cases. You're like a, a UFO encyclopedia. <laughs> I have fun. I love this subject. There's layers and layers to it, as you know. <laughs> I do. Never ending. Um, so before we wrap it up, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and to find your new book? I'm pretty easy to find on social media. You know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I do have a website. That's probably the best place if you want to actually reach out to me or check out my research, uh, which is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Just punch in my name. It should take you there. 
but you can absolutely contact me through my website. If you have a story you'd like to share or a comment or a question or whatever, I always love connecting to people. And uh, my books are available through my website or, of course, on online retailers, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, other booksellers. Uh, yeah, 30 books. I'm counting, Gary. I've got more coming up. <laughs> other volume of Not From Here is in the works already. Mm-hmm. More books on contact and psychic stuff. So I'm busy. That is awesome. I, I'm certainly fond of the books on the psychic stuff because I find that fascinating. The psychic and the spiritual side of it are just, I don't know. I, I love that stuff because that was something that I wasn't aware of before I started this podcast. I started talking to like you, Michael, and Kathleen, and some other people as well. Yeah, I love the psychic stuff. UFOs are really cool, but what's cool about the psychic stuff is this is something that involves us directly that we can do that, and we can experience. You know, to, I mean, it's you can call down a UFO certainly, but. You're depending on them to answer, and they will. But if you want to have out-of-body experiences, it's a matter of meditation. Yeah. <laughs> you want to have recognition. You know, all you have to do is meditate. Meditation is the real key to all of psychic abilities. Uh, so that's where I think people should start. But astral travel is a really good entry point into mm-hmm. your psychic abilities uh, because that will activate past life recall and precognition, and healing, and all the all these events, but levitation, and dreams. Dreams is another easy avenue. Um, becoming lucid in the dream state is much, very much related to astral travel, and another easy access to the paranormal. Because if you start writing down your dreams, you can remember four or five per night, chances are one of them is going to be precognitive, because that's where, you know, or can activate that ability. This is an ability we have, and dreams is an avenue to it that is very easily accessed. Maybe that's why we experience deja vu, because we have that dream somewhere in our subconscious, not necessarily remembering it, but then we go through the experience, and we're like, oh, I feel like I've been here before. Yeah, I love it. I love the psychic stuff. It's so much fun when it happens. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> It is cool. And it's real. It's all, it is real. You know, I, I did a remote viewing course and I was blown away by the results of it. I like, I was like, I didn't know I could do this. Yeah. I, did, I was remote viewing with this guy. We're like just experimenting. I'm like, I don't know. All I'm seeing is this orange. <laughs> Maybe some, no, a lemon and orange. He's just laughed. He's like, oh my God. He showed me the picture of the target object that mm-hmm. placed orange on his. Uh, dryer in his laundry room. I'm like, oh, that's what I saw. I believe I got it. I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool what we can do. Um, so, yeah, I will post the links to your books and to your website in the notes of this episode. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you again. Mm, thanks, Gary. Always a pleasure talking to you. Do it again sometime? <laughs> hey, you got it. <laughs> and welcome to the East Coast. Thank you. <laughs> to your undisclosed location. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And hang on for one moment. I'm just going to play the outro.
Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio. Recording stopped.